Welcome back to the Lessons for Tomorrow podcast, the motivational poster in your ear. I'm your host, Tim Lanius, VP of Strategic Initiatives at AmericanEagle.com. In this episode, we're going to be diving into one of the favorite buzzwords of the past few years, composable. It's not headless, it's composable now. So we're going to unpack that more as we move forward. To discuss this, I'm joined by Chris Bach, Netlify, co-founder, CCO, CSO, and many more. So Chris, welcome to the show. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and about the company and maybe a little bit about your past as well. What brought you to being a co-founder for Netlify? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm Chris Bach. I am a, a co-founder of Netlify. I also sit on the board of the Mark Alliance. I have a number of angel investments, 30 plus, I think, in in the, the composable category, you could say, right? Especially mm-hmm. around developer tooling. I uh, sit a number of advisory boards as well. And yeah, spend most of my time, I would say, in uncomposable architecture and the other sort of movements around this new decentralized web economy uh, that sort of leads to it. Wonderful. And for those who don't know, can you explain a little bit about the Mock Alliance and kind of how that yeah. was formed and, and the benefits of it? Absolutely. So the Mark Alliance is an industry body really for composable architecture. And it comes in and, and helps and guides enterprises in how to engage uh, when it comes to composable architecture. So it has quite strict certifications for its members on are they actually composable? Is it microservices, uh, cloud native? Is it headless? Does it use APIs? And it does so in, in the right way, right? Or is it more sort of a traditional legacy monolithic way, right? So it looks at, uh, is it software as a service? Is it multi-tenant? It, it basically, on behalf of, of clients and enterprises, goes and looks a lot at the, the different vendors in this space and makes sure both whether they're SIs or SVs or enablers, that they sort of fit the bill and uh, that enterprises can depend on them for being successful. Uh, when it comes to implementing composable architecture. Wonderful, yeah, and, and we've worked with them as well. And it's, a, a, I think, great to see kind of that industry-wide approach to making sure that a, a technology evolution, really, of where composable has come from, those monolithic legacy systems, we'll talk about that past in a little bit, has really just been focused on how do we make sure that we you know, continue the evolution of that technology in the right direction and working together uh, across the board there. Uh, I know Absolutely. a lot of partners have become members of the mock alliance mm. and and looking at that opportunity so let's let's jump backwards a little bit and unpack what you mentioned when describing the mock alliance and kind of where it came from with the legacy side of things what kind of was prior to composable and and, and what caused the need for composable in your mind well absolutely i mean and this is this is also very much the origin story of netlify mm-hmm. so around 10 years ago we saw an opportunity to essentially and what this all started with was decoupling the web mm-hmm. that means separating the front end from the back end and we saw that uh, my co-founder and I, we, and I should say we're both from uh, Copenhagen, Denmark, as a way mm-hmm. of intro here. <laughs> we, we, I do live in San Francisco, both of us do, and, and, um, and Netlify is, is over, well, it's completely distributed today, right, but mm-hmm. started over here. But what we saw, um, and, and before that, I should also mention, maybe mention that <laughs> I'm, uh, I spent 15 years in agencies. Mm-hmm. So I saw this very much from, from that side of things, right? And I think the web was threatened as a standard, right? By walled gardens and by issues of scalability and, mm-hmm. and security. What we saw on mobile was that no one thought it was a good idea to pull in the UI every time you turn a page, right? The, the basic architecture of the web. This is not whether you choose WordPress or Sitecore, Adobe yeah. Experience Manager, but the underlying architecture wasn't really fitting the need, right? And so we ended up with, with apps that are downloaded, right? Mm-hmm. And then when they execute it from the mobile phone's operating system, they'll talk to services, APIs, and yeah. so on, and pull in whatever information they need 
for real-time updating. We saw it on the infrastructure of things, right? Even in 2007, Jeff Bezos was out talking about two pizza teams and microservices and this idea of, of being able to be much more nimble and for reasons of scale and security as well, right? You didn't want to work everyone on, on one big monolith, but rather slice out the different functions and standalone services. However, the web was still running on what we call traditional legacy monoliths, right? Mm -hmm. And all that really means is there's a big fat program running on a single server <laughs> and trying to cater everything, right? Wow. And so when we talk a bit, a bit larger systems, traditional what we call digital experience platform or DXPs, mm -hmm. um, which basically all large.coms are running on or used to run on, right? And it's functionality like content management and commerce and built tools and analytics and a lot of these things pulled in. What it meant is that, that it sort of had to be exposed and it had to be running and it had to be building for every single visitor. Yeah. And that very often led to something that could be quite bloated and quite ungovernable um, and, and really best in class at nothing because what happened at the same time was all our digital touch points really started growing, yeah. right? There became more and more of them. So this idea of being able to build natively for each one became more and more important. Mm -hmm. Also, we sort of collectively found out just how important omni-channel is, right, for, for oh, most yes. businesses. Oh, absolutely. Right? And, and, and we saw that, especially in the e-commerce space. And, and as you mentioned, there's so many different tools and technologies that are there. And, and Scott Brinker, uh, Chief Martech, puts out his marketing mm -hmm. landscape. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he's not even doing it every year now, I believe, because of how massive that uh, list is now. Mm -hmm. But there's 10,000 plus different technologies and the different aspects of marketing technology exactly. that can be implemented into your digital experience. Mm -hmm. And that's where Composable really kind of needed to come out because exactly. you had all these different choices and you had different maturity levels of those tools as well. The DXPs had maturity levels also, but at a certain point you would have to go to a third party marketing tool to truly deliver the experience that you needed to. And all these systems needed to connect, but there was never a way that every time you did it, it was a custom integration, custom integration. Exactly. We built and built and built these over the exactly. years. And every time that someone came in and, and we'll have to talk about CMOs in a future episode and the 18 to 24 month time frame yep. that you have before they come in and bring all the technologies mm -hmm. they want into the, uh, the organization. But that constant switching is, I think, one of the best reasons for Composable because it really started to bring and I use this word lightly and in air quotes for those who don't see me, an ease ability for switching to a new technology solution. Exactly. And so back to when we started there, right? We saw proof in the pudding mm -hmm. that this decoupling would make sense. And we saw that if we would decouple the front end, that is, in other words, that's the UI, that's mm -hmm. the web experience layer, that's the presentation, that's what you're going to interact with on a screen, whether it's yeah. an iPad or mobile or a fitness bike or your laptop, mm -hmm. right? You separate that from the backend needs. It would actually, it seemed like a technicality, but it would lead to so much, right? It could could potentially unleash a lot of potential. And, and so one was that instead of having that one server, which is a single point of origin, which mm -hmm. is a very big traditional bottleneck, you could now pre-build things and distribute it so you would have multiple points of origin. Mm -hmm. So that made it a lot more fast and a lot more scalable. And we all know that faster load times gives higher conversion, right? Yeah. At the same time, the built image in itself, the, the what would run, mm -hmm. right? That would now happen on your developer's computer rather than being exposed for everyone, right? So it was a lot more secure by default. But then the next layer here was really that it would enable this hugely growing section, which is web developers, right? Now, front-end developers, they used to cut up Photoshop files and turn them into HTML. 
that was the actual job, right? Mm -hmm. Then you send it off for implementation somewhere. Now, when we started Netlify, they were already starting to, to use frameworks like uh, JavaScript frameworks like mm -hmm. Angular, and they were doing advanced applications, but they were still left to hand it over for implementation. And anyone that's worked on the agency side knows that, well, or marketing, I would, I, I would assume, right? <laughs> knows that that's where deadlines go to die, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have control of it, you'll build out the site, but as soon as it has to go for implementation, like DevOps and system administrators, yeah. they will come back in a few months if you're lucky. And it's not going to look what you gave to them because it had been some limit and fit the templates and so on, yeah. right? Now, in this world, because it was decoupled, it would just pull that data from the backend as APIs, mm -hmm. right? That is super powerful because now when you push, you're live, yeah. right? And that meant so much for time to market, right? And and so much for, for I would say, developer, the velocity and velocity of those marketing departments trying to publish. So, so there was a lot to be said for that. But then lastly, it would pave the way to, to composable architecture. Mm -hmm. And I'm, there's so many different variations of, of defining this, right? But a really basic one I find is just think of it this way, right? Where before your commerce solution well, what was the output of that? Well, it was often a website, right? Now, the same was for your content management solutions, but you only have one.com. So if each of these functions output a, a website, you, you have to choose to use one of them, right? Mm -hmm. But if they're all APIs and they're all headless, right? And, they, and you can all pull from them as data sources, well, that's composable, right? Now you can mix and match those different ones, right? They don't have to be from the same vendor, all of it. You can change one without having to change all the others. Mm -hmm. But in order for that, you actually needed that decoupled architecture to really work first, right? Wow. And so at the end of the day, we saw there's so much potential here, but two things are needed. First, an ecosystem. It's very simple. There's no headless commerce without a headless commerce provider, mm -hmm. right? If all the commerce providers are only providing it as monolithics, uh, a monoliths, right? Then yeah. there's, there's nothing to, 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 to really come for. And secondly, it would need what you were talking about before as well, right? a viable workflow. Mm -hmm. So once you've got these monoliths, once they, they just do what they do well, let's say, manage content, right? But they're no longer uh, giving you that uh, release management, right? And, uh, or compiling things. And there's what about hosting and how do you, how do you deal with all those different kinds of things, right? And, and all the different infrastructure that goes into it to, to coming live. If you could create a platform that could just tie all those things together. And then by uh, the Git workflows that the companies have already chosen, just automated everything from there. Mm -hmm. Really a new way of thinking. It's not about choosing a hosting provider, it's about abstracting the need away. In yeah. this world, you're not setting caching headers. There isn't huge teams having to deal with infrastructure and, and uh, SQL injections and all those mm -hmm. things that can actually be abstracted away. Then that would be a very powerful play, right? And it would also be needed because back then the only things built this way were blocks, mm. right? And so we started out basically betting everything on a market trend that didn't exist. And then fast forward to today, I would say where there was two or three companies back then, there's more than 2,500 today. Yeah. And uh, Netlify alone has more than 4 million businesses and developers on the platform. Mm -hmm. We had, I think, more than 115,000 every month. And we're really seeing how this is is taking off extremely rapidly, mm -hmm. right? Gartner was out talking about 12% of enterprises uh, said they would build composably in 2020 mm -hmm. if they were building new, yeah. right? But then you take the life cycle of seven to 10 years for <laughs> one of those DXPs and it's yeah. actually much less. The number was 23% mm -hmm. in 2021, 70% in 2022. But yeah. this year they're saying that 70% of all the enterprises will be building with composable architecture. Mm -hmm. And that goes to, to show to me that this is the biggest shift we've had since on-prem to cloud. Mm 
Yes. Right. This is a mm. huge movement. And, and and so for Netlify, we really sort of went out there and, and, and pioneered the front end cloud. So if mm. you think of how you work together with deploy previews and serverless Vicate, all those things are sort of industry standards we, we, we pushed out there. Now we're also seeing a new audience, right? Mm. Uh, and an audience in enterprises that are saying, well, it's not about just optimizing for a new system. It's more about how can we bring modern workflows that works equally well with our legacy systems or, or existing systems, right? To use a, a yeah. nicer word, right? Which can still have a, a you know a ton of, of fantastic functionality and composable architecture. And and how do you provide unified release management for mm-hmm. both of them, right? How do you provide that next level of orchestration you need mm-hmm. as an enterprise architect? And so that's really what Netlify is focusing on today, making not just developers but companies successful. Uh, so we're still providing the plumbing, mm-hmm. right? And we're still providing what you need to be successful in choosing the best-in-class components and then tying them together. No, absolutely. And I, I think with all of that too, Chris, what I I love the 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 stats, right? And and, and this is a big key thing that I want to make sure that we we hit on for our listeners is that acceleration and that uh, jump in numbers uh, that Chris just ran us through um, with the number of organizations moving mm-hmm. into the composable architecture space was also greatly impacted, especially in the B2B organizations oh, yeah. because of the pandemic. And that mm-hmm. forced them to take a digital transformation process that typically was a seven to 10 year. And they were yeah. forced to figure out a way to survive without physical presence with all the logistics issues that were happening. So in a way, it actually took a common life cycle of some of the different platforms and technologies that an organization had internally and said, whoa, wait, we have to adjust now and pivot faster than we're used to. And so many of the CTOs and CIOs and CMOs that I've talked to, and especially more on the infrastructure side, were accelerated by this fact because they had to figure out different ways to handle inventory, shipping, pickup. um, I mean, all of that came into play. And I think one one thing that I love, and then even though... Netlify isn't a e-commerce provider. I love your tagline on your homepage or your website mm-hmm. of we ship the future faster. <laughs> and it's so true because the way that you can utilize Composable to be faster in an implementation of a technology solution for the digital transformation that's happening there. And, and digital transformation, I know, is a word that everyone is like, oh, it's a buzzword. It's a buzzword. But yeah. guess what? It's never done. And that's the one thing I think that a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that, oh, I'm going to go through a digital transformation and I'll have an endpoint. Yep. You won't because something new will change in that technology platform. Maybe that technology platform is end of life. Uh, We see all sorts of companies do this. Google just did that with their A-B testing tool, Google Optimize, announced end of life for September. They forced a huge transformation for people with the Google Analytics switch over to GA4 from UA. It's brought a whole new aspect to people of what they have to do. The same happens across the board. So if you have that composable architecture in place and you don't have to put everything into it right away, that's the beauty no. of it. You can start to build a composable architecture infrastructure and slowly move pieces of your organization over into it as appropriate. Exactly, right? And I think you hit on so many right things here, but like we, we absolutely saw the same, right? And I remember speaking to, to lots of companies that said, well, we had that that e-commerce project, but it was exploratory and it was like Q, uh, you know, Q3 2024, right? Yeah. And this is in 2020. <laughs> it's not exploratory yeah. anymore, right? This is top of the agenda. And it went along, as you said, it's not about saying, hey, I need a new storefront, mm-hmm. right? It's about saying, hey, we had 2000 outlet, now we have one yeah. and it's online. 
and how do we cater that, mm-hmm. right? And being holistic and looking at everything from your PIM to to, yeah. to your uh, transactional layer and, and how it all works together. So that is very much something we saw as, as well, right? And I would say if you looked at the scene, and I'm talking from an ISV vendor point of view of e-commerce, headless commerce in 2020, there was still just a handful of providers. Oh, yeah. Right. And now there's hundreds and hundreds, mm-hmm. like everyone has come this way, right? Because yeah. they saw something needed that needed catering. And, and that's wonderful because yeah. that also means that everyone is out there pushing each other mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to next level. How would you e-commerce? Yeah. Uh, no, tremendously absolutely. these days. Well, and, and, and the impact that it had on the consumer experience, I oh, think yeah. is critical because that forced an improvement in the technology solutions that are being used. I look at the buy, you know, BOPIS, buy online, pick up in store, mm-hmm. or you've got a uh, buy online, pick up curbside now mm-hmm. where you had so many more people still driving to a physical yeah. location, but, oh wait, the convenience of me not even having to go into the store. Oh, that's excellent. Yep. And it's continued since you, you know, yeah. after some of the things were restrictions removed, et cetera, you think people would maybe not do that as much. I still see it used yeah. a lot. The big thing that I think that happened also was on the marketing side. And this comes into that, again, the the engagement that you have and the messaging that you provide and the importance of having your tools integrated together very seamlessly yeah. was in the messaging as well. Because we saw yeah. brands losing the loyalty that they had been built up over mm-hmm. years because of incorrect messaging. I've yeah. talked about that on the show in the past and a, a couch buying experience. I won't go in depth again here. Past episodes you can listen to. But Basically, the messaging was just so poorly done that I was just like, why, why am I going to continue to wait when they keep delaying and they don't tell me that it's a true long delay? Now, they fortunately still received my purchase from a clearance outlet that I was able to go visit in person. So the same manufacturer still received revenue yeah. from me. But overall, it was more the tell me the truth. What's the messaging? But also know, hey, this is my third time back to the site looking at other couches after mm-hmm. I've already purchased one. It hasn't been delivered. Hey, there's something there that you could mm-hmm. have between your systems with a composable architecture, the data flowing yeah. to give me a great consumer experience, customer experience yeah. overall. So, Chris, what are some of the main reasons that organizations should consider composable and are, are integrating it into their solutions today? Well, I think there's a lot of them, but uh, the main reasons that we see again and again, I think number one has to be faster time to market, mm-hmm. right? Pure velocity, like this idea that you have to hand things over to DevOps and system administrators and wait a few months to hopefully get an answer and so on. It's, it just doesn't fly anymore, right? And so I think that adaptability and being able to react quickly and move fast and experiment, which also needs fast time to market for that to actually fly, that's really needed, mm-hmm. right? Uh, number two I see is flexibility. So flexibility is more than one thing, right? Here it both means the idea that I can say, hey, I don't need to change everything if I want to just change this part, yeah. right? But I can swap it out. But it also means a lot for what I'm sure you sit every day and talk to your clients around, which is brand differentiation, right? Mm-hmm. I think today, especially when it comes to e-commerce, there's just so many vendors out there that if you're locked in by whatever templates that lies underneath the service provided by your DXP or monolith, and you can only build within those frameworks, that very often won't give you the necessary brand differentiation. But if you can build completely freely and create that digital touch points that looks and feels exactly the way you want it, right? Mm-hmm. Independent on on the back end, then I think that gives you a lot of freedom, right? And we see that again and again, yeah. that part of the result there is, is the ability to really stand out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think flexibility is a big one. Speed, 
is a big one as well. So this is an easy one, right? Like the faster site loads, the, the, the higher conversion rates mm -hmm. you have. The reality is that if you do compose a blog, it takes you right. Then you can have multiple points of origin for the end results for those digital touch mm -hmm. points. And you have to run code and execute code a lot less per visitor. If you're trying to build everything from a monolith, then you're just going to have less of that flexibility. So even if you have the monolith and, and, and you can cache some of the things like media files on a CDN, mm -hmm. The origin still, you still need a round trip to the origin. And the reality just is that your time to first byte is going to be slower. And, and if you do composable right by default, you get it faster, right? Without a large operational overhead. There is, it's not a result of, of tons of engineers setting just the right caching. It's just, yeah. you get it by pushing it live, yeah. right? Uh, so, so speed is a big one. And then omnichannel, right? Mm -hmm. I think. Omnichannel, and, and there's lots of surveys out there by Target and Macy's and Albertsons mm -hmm. and so on, right? That shows uh, recently how omnichannel customers are likely to, to shop 400% more than store only uh, yeah. uh, customers. So there's all the incentive in the world to meet clients and customers more than one place, mm -hmm. uh, but in as many touch points as possible. And if you don't have the flexibility of building natively for those touch points, right? Mm -hmm. If you have that one solution that tries to cater everything, uh, that's very hard to do, yeah. essentially, right? And so omnichannel is, is really favored by composable architecture mm -hmm. because you can build really well for each uh, touch point, right? There's also scalability and security. I mm -hmm. think we talked about those those earlier on, right? Yeah. But composable architecture is, is much more, I would say, secure by default because your APIs and microservices have smaller service areas of attacks than a monolith usually has. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this goes on in the, in the development phase and the build phase, which is not live, but yeah. happening in a built environment that's separated from that domain that goes live. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of these, right? And there's, there's more, right? But for mm -hmm. the sake of time, I think like these are some of the big ones. Yeah. And, and this is primary reasons for enterprises to adopt composable mm -hmm. architecture. But there's also what's in it for the end user, yeah. right? Yeah, let's talk about them. And, and how does it benefit them? I mean, you talked about the speed and everything from the organization's perspective of mm -hmm. uh, deployments and, mm -hmm. and, and the speed of that site because of the impact on transactions. And, and you mentioned omni-channel, which I think is key because there's so much that happens now mm -hmm. with uh, mobile phone in everyone's pocket. There's so much price comparison shopping. There's a lot of different stats out there about it. but a lot of people in that omni-channel experience, right? If you're in a physical store, you might be price comparison shopping right then and there and saying, hey, I'm in the store, but can I get it cheaper? And it's amazing that for a dollar or two, people will actually, it's in front of them. Yep. But they'll actually buy online through that mobile device. So performance and speed come in critically there Yep. because you're in a moment to potentially take that away from a competitor, mm -hmm. that transaction, or it could still be from your own site that you're benefiting. And maybe it was something in clearance or somewhere else, but they're finding that and, and they're having that omni-channel experience. But it happens across the board everywhere. Someone sees Absolutely. something as they're, you know, I just had this, we were in St. Louis for a soccer tournament for my oldest for travel soccer this past weekend. And there was something really cool. I was like, oh, we want to go do that event and let's go buy a ticket online. And I immediately mm -hmm. hopped on and the purchase experience was extremely fast. So guess what? They got my transaction right away. Mm -hmm. Different venue that I looked at, the purchase experience was horrible. Mm -hmm. It was slow. It was a clunky user interface. So that's where I think composable benefits yep. the delivery side of that. But for the consumer experience, what all does for, it provide? You know, it, it benefits of a lot of the same reasons. So 
I'm sure a lot of your clients do surveys on the satisfactory, mm -hmm. uh, how satisfactory was your digital experience yeah. with us today. And one thing that always tops out, right, is speed, Yeah. right? It leads to, a, a, you know, a negative result, right? Mm -hmm. Where them being really unhappy with the experience if it's too yeah. slow. And if it's really fast, it makes them a lot happier, right? Yeah. So it actually means something for our sentiment towards the company, right? Mm -hmm. Besides the the known fact that I'm much more likely to bounce if you add three seconds in my initial time to first bite, right? Yeah. There's like a 50% chance that I'm gone, right? Yeah. So I think speed really, really matters for that reason. Another reason is, as, as we talked about earlier, before the monolith couldn't cater an app on a bike, mm -hmm. right? Versus uh, developer documentation versus, uh, you know, a dot com yeah. with, with all the enterprise stakeholders. So they were siloed solutions, right? Mm -hmm. And so the experience between the different solutions is going to have less in common. It's going to feel less coherent. And you're very often likely to drop data. For example, yeah. let's say you're, you have a car configurator, right? And you sit and fit, fill that in. And now you go to the point of sale. And then you have to do it all over again mm -hmm. because nothing was saved and nothing is yeah. usable. And those systems are completely unrelated, right? Because yeah. of the nature of what else it had to support, defined that they couldn't support both experiences. Yeah. In a composable world, that would be a much easier data exchange, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that for the user, you get a lot of benefits from a much more cohesive experience in your total interactions mm -hmm. with that company. So I think those are two of them, right? And then there's the obvious ones of no one likes to... Uh, to go and visit something that's suffering from a slash dot effect, as we used to call it, right? Basically, yes. you get a lot of 502s because too many uh, mm -hmm. users try to hit up the same place at, at yeah. the same time, right? And composable architecture, because of the nature of, of it being decoupled, if you apply the right architecture, as we talked about, that means that you have better reliability and uptime, yeah. right? And so you might, for example, let's say you're buying a ticket, so that, that API might have some limits and some rate mm -hmm. limits, right? But, but you still have a much better experience on the site as such because yeah. it's independently loaded from that ticket sale. Yep. Whereas in a monolith, those two are the same. So you're not getting anything. You don't know if you're your connection mm -hmm. or anything else. In this case, you have a finished website. You're in there. You know where you are, yeah. right? And you know it's because, okay, I'm trying to get a ticket and so there's a lot of other people at the mm -hmm. same time. So that still leads to a market better experience. Oh, right? yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning into the future by listening to Lessons for Tomorrow podcast. Stay tuned for part two of this episode with Netlify co-founder Chris Bach. For more information, as I mentioned, check out the description of this episode. And as always, follow us on social media if you care to join us there. I'm sometimes there, sometimes not. Depends on the day. And we look forward to future episodes. This episode is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. I'm your host, Tim Lanius, and I'll catch you in the next lesson.